global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to have Mark McLawhorn on our podcast. Mark is the founder of McLawhorn Legal, a law firm based in Columbia, South Carolina. A graduate of the University of South Carolina School of Law, Mark also holds a master's in Chinese business law from the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Mark's professional trajectory includes clerkships for judges in the South Carolina Court of Appeals and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He is an experienced litigator who has worked as a federal public defender in the U.S. Attorney's Office and in private practice. Mark, welcome to Global Law and Business. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Mark, we'd like to start off by talking about your current work. Could you tell us about McLawhorn Legal, about your vision for the firm? We know South Carolina has been an investment destination for some foreign companies, with BMW perhaps being the best known. Where does your firm fit into this? Yes, so uh, McLawhorn Legal, um, I started earlier this year in 2020. Um, It's a full-service law firm, um, primarily focusing on litigation services, uh, criminal defense, both federal and state. Um, administrative hearings, and also personal injury cases and business litigation. South Carolina is a big international hub for international business. Um, and what I see my firm is basically becoming a forefront and a regional leader in international business litigation issues. But I also want my firm to be uh, rooted in the community. I still want to be community centered, focusing on people who need access to legal services. Um, but you are right. South Carolina is a hub of international business. I believe since 2011, um, over $19 billion have been invested in South Carolina by outside um, international firms and it's produced about 42,000 jobs. And more recently, um, in 2018, uh, a Japanese company um, that, that does carbon fiber, they built a factory or starting to build a factory in Greenwood, South Carolina, and invested $600 million. And that's very interesting because Greenwood is a very rural county in South Carolina. So, yes, Charleston has Boeing. BMW is located in Greenville. But a lot of areas in South Carolina, like Samsung, is in Newberry County. Um, and you have Hire, um, which is part, I think the factory there now is GE. Uh, but that's another rural part of South Carolina. So you're seeing a lot of businesses coming to rural areas in the South, especially in South Carolina. Mark, going back to some of your earlier experiences, 
I'd really like to hear more about your experiences as a clerk, especially as someone who didn't have that experience. The the homage that so many of Justice Ginsburg's clerks uh, paid uh, to her during during her her funeral really highlighted the critical role that clerks play in our in our judicial system. So perhaps for for those listeners who might not be familiar with the role of clerks, you could begin by explaining uh, what is it that that clerks do exactly, and perhaps also tell us a, a little bit about your your own experiences. So the best way I can explain explain what a clerk does in the court system is think about a company and they have a general counsel, and the general counsel advises the company on certain issues. That's what a law clerk is doing in the court system. They're advising the judge on particular legal issues and cases, and they are a trusted advisor. They have a free exchange of ideas with the judge and advise them on what the law is and what the implications of a particular ruling in the case. Also, I would say that being a law clerk is probably one of the most phenomenal positions you can have coming straight out of law school. It's one of the very few jobs where you're afforded so much power. And another thing that's very influential about law clerks that a lot of people don't know is very notable is that uh, they can leave their mark on monumental cases. You see the cases at the United States Supreme Court. Majority of all of those cases are probably written by law clerks. Of course, the judge has to be on board, but all those cases are written by law clerks for the most part. And the power that you have as a law clerk, you're affecting someone's liberty interest, whether it's a, a prison case or whether a plaintiff is going to get relief in a multi-million dollar litigation, whether it's an environmental issue. And also, law clerks really can play an influential role whether somebody lives or dies. You see the First Circuit uh, recently in the um, Boston Marathon case, they overturned the death conviction of one of the Boston Marathon bombers. And so, again, probably law clerks were very instrumental and influential in the decision um, and coming up with the legal ideas, the legal theory, and advising the judge um, on those particular cases. That's very interesting what, what you mentioned about having about clerks having the opportunity to actually write some of these important decisions. I remember as a law student during one of my, during one of my, I think it was um, federal criminal law during that course, the, the professor, we were going over some, some decision and I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I don't remember which one, but as he, as he read a particular passage, he, he he told the class that he was pretty confident that that, particular section had been written by another one of our of our professors who had who had clerked for um, for someone in the Supreme Court. So that's um, I mean, you're you're spot on about that. And you look at Supreme Court, most of the justices on the Supreme Court were previous law clerks. Um, So it seems like the opportunity to have a clerkship experience can um, easily translate to a judicial officer, um, whether it's a state on court on the federal court system. Mark, your description reminds me of uh, I had a chance to clerk for a judge after my 1L summer. And I remember writing, you know, briefing this uh, this decision for him. And he looked at it and said, you know, this is really good. And he basically adopted it, you know, wholesale. And, and I was looking at him thinking, are you nuts? Do you, I've only had one year of law school, right? There's no way I can I can be on point with this. Uh, but it did feel like a an, uh, kind of an insane amount of power for someone who, who uh, was so new to the law. Um, but you're right. It, it was a very fun exchange. Even as a 1L, you know, I, I had a great 
back and forth with this judge that I was clerking for. And he respected my opinion as much as uh, any seasoned practitioner. I, I was really uh, kind of impressed and wowed by that. So Mark, turning to your experience in Hong Kong, what made you decide to pursue a degree at the Chinese university? Did you find it was worthwhile? Would you recommend it to recent law school graduates or experienced practitioners? So I ended up in Hong Kong probably by, it was kind of just like kind of coincidental um, in a sense. I had a had two clerkships. I was finishing up my clerkship at the state court and I had a clerkship waiting on me at the Fifth Circuit. And I had a gap year in between. And this was 2011, 2012. As you remember, the economy was in uh, bad shape uh, during the Great Recession. And I wanted to do something during that gap year. I didn't want to get a job and you know go to a clerkship. But I wanted to do something that was worthwhile. And I talked to one of my friends who's a lawyer in California, but he was in South Carolina at the time. He said, well, maybe you should think about applying to some LAM programs and specifically dealing with China. And uh, I think it was very spot on because at that time, uh, you know, a lot of time, like from particular me, I didn't know much about China at that particular time regarding a robust uh, economic uh, power that they were that they had at the time and still are having. And so I applied, I got into the program. I received a full scholarship and. I think it was a great experience, very worthwhile for me. That was my first time out the country as an adult. And, the, and I would say the first time out the country and I actually lived in a foreign land for over 11 months. And, and this was a very uh, big thing for me coming from Columbia, South Carolina. Population at the time probably was 120,000 people. And I'm going to an area with 7.6 million people uh, in a small area. And just seeing the the sights and sounds and um, learning about different culture, eating different food. I uh, had a great appreciation of, of the culture. And one thing I really noticed is you know, Chinese food in the United States is completely different from Chinese food in, you know, that part of uh, in China or in Hong Kong. So I, I actually had the opportunity to actually have authentic Chinese food. Uh, but I think it was a great experience for me. I, I learned a lot about myself. I grew as an individual. And I also understand that you have to look at things from a global perspective and not just from the lens of American. Um, I would definitely recommend doing some type of LOM program if you was in the same situation as me, whether you're a recent grad um, or your experienced practitioner, if you want to learn more about a particular uh, subject in the law. And I believe that's where you and Fred got acquainted with each other. Is that right? That's correct. Fred was my classmate. and uh, We hit it off instantaneously. I'd love to hear about your other classmates that were in your program or, you know, I'm sure it was quite an international mix of people. Uh, were you overall, I mean, what did you learn from your classmates? I feel like when I was in graduate school, I, especially in business school, I had so many classmates from all around the world and it, it really enriched my perspective on, uh, on myself and, and on the world. It really was probably the best part of, of the education process was rubbing shoulders with these, these kinds of people. Yeah. So, um, you're definitely right. I had a friend from um, Italy, Claudio, who's our classmate. And Fred, you probably remember this. Uh, Claudio used to have good food, uh, great cappuccino. I uh, used to make it in his apartment um, in the Jordan area of Hong Kong. I had some classmates from Turkey, from Poland. I uh, was learning about their, their different cultures. And that was a time where a lot of upheaval was going on around the world. So during the, the Arab Spring and the civil war in Syria. So it was just interesting just having talking to people about these different international issues from different countries 
at that time. A majority, we had a lot of people actually from mainland China, and that was quite interesting because, like, you're in Chinese business law, of course, but you are in, but you're from mainland China. My classmates, I still keep in contact with a lot of them, and and just the friends that I met in Hong Kong, I still keep in contact with them on a regular basis. Actually, when I was getting prepared for the coronavirus that was um, about to come to America, I talked to one of my friends in Hong Kong and he was telling me, like, make sure you get some masks because we don't have any in Hong Kong. We don't have any the toilet paper. And so I was kind of able to get uh, above the, the curve in the United States as regard in regards to mass use. Um, make sure I had an ample amount of masks. But again, I probably would have not known that if I didn't, make, didn't have that connection in Hong Kong. I actually lived in Hong Kong, went to school there. So it's, it was just a great experience for me overall. I find that in my own life, if you look at my, my closest friends, well, uh, basically we're, uh, there, there's a concentration uh, of when that happened. And, and two of those uh, moments were the program in, in Hong Kong and also my second year of law school, which I spent studying abroad in London. And as a matter of fact, um, Many of the guests <laughs> that we've had on the podcast uh, are are folks that I that I met during uh, during those timeframes, or people that I've met through through those um, those friends. Sticking to to the subject of, of Hong Kong, um, as you know, uh, I obviously lived in Hong Kong for a while, and, and Jonathan did as well. And there are many things we we love about the city. I, I think most. People who who spend time in, in Hong Kong uh, come out with favorable uh, impressions of, of the city. That, that said, Hong Kong does have uh, its um, it, its more negative aspects, and and in particular, it does struggle with with racism. Um, most recently, this has manifested itself um, in hostility against uh, people from mainland China. Uh, in, in a way that really goes beyond the political dimensions of what's happening in, in, in Hong Kong now. There's some of the things that have been said, some of the incidents that have been recorded have a, uh, a, a truly racist uh, edge to them. Um, and, and there's also been issues with, um, for example, some of the, the, the groups that went to Hong Kong during British times to, to work with the British administration, people from modern day India, Pakistan, Nepal, they, they, they have issues uh, as well. So I'd like to ask for your opinion as a black man, um, what was your experience like in Hong Kong? And more, more to the point, um, do, do you think that perhaps some of the expats that spend time in Hong Kong have a, something of an idealized vision of, of Hong Kong's acceptance of outsiders and that maybe they're missing part of the equation. Yeah, so um, again, generally overall, I had a great experience in Hong Kong. I did notice that the people who are from, you know, Southeast Asian countries are Pakistan and India, are African nations, experience a lot of um, racial overtones while I was there. Uh, personally, I didn't have a lot of racial experience, but I do remember one particularly dealing with the Hong Kong police. Um, I was, again, this was uh, near the, the school I was at. It was in Admiralty um, in the Bank of America building. 
And I remember I was walking on a breezeway. I think I was going to a Lippo Center, if I remember correctly. And I was just minding my business and I get approached, get stopped by uh, two Hong Kong police. And they asked for my ID immediately. And and I know in Hong Kong, you're supposed to keep your ID on you. That's part of the rules. And I understood that. But the whole time I was there and talking to other classmates and people that they never was stopped. And their ID was uh, never, they never was asked to present their ID. And I was explaining to them. And when they found out I was American, their perception totally changed. And when I think that during that process, one of my classmates saw me and it was kind of embarrassing because it's right outside the law school. I'm in this law school. The students know me immediately. When you see police talking to somebody, you think, you know, bad things, maybe somebody's you know, committed a crime or whatever. And uh, the student, my fellow student was talking to them in Cantonese. Once that conversation was over, that was it. They didn't do anything else. Uh, they let me go about my business. So two things were was very interesting for me. That even though I'm a person that's black, they still treated me different from somebody who may be from an African nation because I was American, which was kind of weird to me because, you know, growing up in the, in the United States, uh, you know, you see yourself as a black American and you're also American. But in Asia and Hong Kong, they just saw me as American. They didn't really see me as a black American. But I suspect that I was stopped because I was black and they may have thought I was African. And and I would just I don't know why they stopped me, but it, I think it probably had to do with maybe whether I was still staying my visa or, or any something to that nature. Uh, because of course I didn't do anything illegal. Um but that was kind of a a bad experience I I had there. But overall I had friends who were uh very open minded. Um I met people in Hong Kong who were interested in my culture. Um they, and during that time, Facebook was big, but not as big as it is now. And Instagram was just starting off. So I think a lot of people, some people were generally interested in my culture because they, they, have, they saw the things on Facebook or they saw things on Instagram dealing with black culture or hip hop or um, President Barack Obama was huge at the time because he was elected as president. So a lot of people had a genuine interest in the black experience in America. Uh, but I just remember that particular racial incident that was kind of unnerving at the time. And the vision of Hong Kong by foreigners, um, by expats, I think so to a certain degree. I think if you're a white expat in Hong Kong, you probably see it in a different way as somebody, a person of color, um, because I think the people of Hong Kong are used to people who may be from, you know, more from the European countries because it used to be a British colony, Macau used to be a Portuguese colony. Um, so they may have a different, you know, idea of, of what Hong Kong is. Um, and how they look at foreigners that look like them. But again, I, I met some, you know, some Africans there and some black Americans there and they, their outlook was kind of different, um, compared to the people who was from like European countries or people from Australia, um, who were of different skin, skin color. I grew up in Wisconsin, rural Wisconsin, primarily white community. And when I went to Hong Kong as a 19 year old, one of the most shocking things that I learned is that racism exists in every culture. And I, I had no idea. I mean, really, I legitimately, and you know, I was, I was an ignorant 19 year old, right? I legitimately had no idea that, uh, you know, I mean, I had learned about the Rwandan genocide. I mean, I, I knew about things kind of intellectually, but, but seeing it in action and seeing how 
you know, especially I, I saw some Chinese people, heard them talking about, uh, you know, black Africans or just black people in general. And I was, and I was kind of, I looked at them and my jaw dropped and I'm like, I'm like, what are you even saying? I mean, it doesn't, you know, racism has no place in the world at all. But it was it was shocking for me as a white person to kind of have my eyes open and, and see like, oh, this is really a global problem. This is not just a, a problem in the U.S. And I think wherever it is a problem, we have to address it. And we, and we have to, uh, you know, we have to open people's eyes and say, hey, this people are people the world around. It doesn't matter if they're ethnically Chinese, Chinese minorities, wherever they come from in the world, you know. So that's something I feel very passionate about uh, for many years. But, um, but it, that was my time in Asia that really opened my eyes up to it. So if we can stick on this topic a little bit, Mark, we'd like to focus on what's going on in the U.S. Um, you know, as a black lawyer in the American South, what is your view on the current movement that we're living in as a nation? I mean, what are you optimistic about? What are you not optimistic about? And and then talking about our legal community, what, what can we really do to help bring about a better future? I'm very optimistic about the movement going on in the, in the United States. Um, I'm encouraged about the new civil rights movement in this country. Um, the issues that you're seeing on TV are not new issues, but what's new is people's attitudes are starting to change more and more. In the black community, you know, police brutality has been a, a thing for a long, long, long time. I remember studying in civil rights class in college. Uh, we had this professor by the name of Dr. Cleveland Sellers, who was a very uh, inspiring, monumental civil rights leader in um, South Carolina. And his son, he's one of the commentators on CNN, Bakari Sellers. He was explaining to us about civil rights movements, but I'm very encouraged about the images I've seen on TV because you see a lot of people protesting and majority of them are not people of color. There are a lot of white people out here protesting. That is a very stark contrast from what, what was seen during the civil rights movement. Um, civil rights movement was predominantly African-Americans. And then, of course, you did have some people who were uh, not African-American to help out. but I think the majority of what you've seen on TV now is a lot of protesters who are white. And that right there shows that it's been a monumental shift of the nation's conscience when it comes to this human rights issue about police brutality. Um, so overall, I'm optimistic. But what I'm not optimistic about is having reform on the national level of the laws. I think that will only change if the politicians, no matter they're Democrat or Republican, find the goodwill and look at this as a human rights issue. And if the lawmakers can come together and have a robust criminal justice bill, particularly dealing with police brutality, reforming police in America, then I'll be very optimistic on where our country can go. But I think one thing that needs to be looked at in any legislation is looking at the, the defense of qualified immunity. Uh, maybe that should be looked at very hard. And also, I think there need to be more funding for community policing. Um, community policing was very big, probably about 10 or 15 years ago. You used to hear about it all the time. Don't hear about it as much. Uh, and I know people talk about defunding the police. I think nobody's really for actually having no law enforcement, but I believe that the resources need to be uh, put into different different areas where it can help people, such as social workers, such as after-school tutors, uh, such as maybe some job placement centers. I think the legal community can do a lot of stuff. Um, during this particular movement in America. Uh, what I did personally was um, when the George Floyd protests started, I represented some of the, the people who are peacefully protesting uh, pro bono. These people out here are out here exercising the first amendment right, trying to make society a better place. 
that's one thing a lawyer can do is represent these people pro bono. They may not have the you know couple thousand dollars representation on a city charge. Do it pro bono. Current lawyers can go out and do vote and registration drives. They can work as poll uh, workers or poll watchers in this election. They can also educate themselves on implicit bias. Uh, a lot of people did not understand what implicit bias was a couple of years ago. And it's basically you have biases that you're not aware of and you just you just react because you have that bias. And I think if lawyers and the judicial system and, uh, and the police force come together and have some mandated training, whether it's by your local government or the judicial council artists or your particular bar association, I think you're starting to get to some of the root uh, of these issues that have, been, that have permeated American society uh, since its existence. Well, Mark, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation. Obviously, it's always good to to catch up. Um, but uh, before before we let you go, we would like to ask if you have any recommendations for our listeners, any books, any YouTube videos, any anything you're you're streaming on Netflix or, or Amazon, um, anything at all, uh, please, uh, please, please share. OK, so my recommendation would be this um, it's a Netflix um, series called Social Dilemma. It deals with uh, social media and how social media has an impact on our everyday life, whether it's from uh, looking at pictures or whether it's like keeping up with family, friends or political discourse. But it also shows you the negative side of social media, the addictive nature of it, uh, how it controls um, some of your thoughts and your self-esteem. I think it's a fascinating uh, Netflix series. I think everybody should watch it. Because if I remember correctly, I think there's over 2 billion people on Facebook. And so it, it's going to affect probably each and every one of us in some either direct or indirect way. It's just fascinating just to kind of understand like the neuroscience and the issues with social media, how it can be a force for good, but also it can be a, a force um, that may have some negative implications on our society long term. We'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, Jonathan, what about you? What do you have for us? I read an article this week uh, in Nikkei Asia that used to be in the Nikkei Asian Review. They just rebranded a couple of days ago. Uh, it's called This is the Asian Century, Seven Reasons to be Optimistic About It. And uh, a couple, I pulled a couple of quotes from this that I like quite a bit. Um, and this, is a, uh, this article is a compilation of thoughts from experts uh, all around the world, uh, primarily focused on Asia. Uh, but but the opening paragraph says this is not the first Asian century. According to the late economic historian uh, Angus Madison, Asia accounted for more than half of world economic output for 18 of the last 20 centuries. So the region's growing cloud in the world economy is a restoration, not a revolution. And then the, kind of the, the question that overrides the article is, will Asia fill the gap in what's going on? Uh, in the world. So it, it looks at COVID, demographic changes, climate change, democracy versus authoritarianism, deglobalization, US v. China polarization, and technology. So very interesting categories and, and thoughts from really uh, experts uh, on really on both sides of, the, of that question. Is, is Asia able and willing to fill this gap the same way that Europe dominated for so long and then the US dominated for so long and now what's going to happen this century? So very interesting article, uh, not a super long read, but uh, but deep enough that you know you can sip your cup of coffee over it while you're reading it. Morning, Fred. What about you? So my recommendation this week is an excellent article about Vietnam-China relations, um, titled 
rough waters ahead for Vietnam-China relations if um, you want the, uh, the summarized version of, of, the, uh, of the report. It was written by Huang Le Tu. I'm sure I didn't pronounce that correctly, so my apologies. Um, published by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. You can find it online and you can also find a link to it on my Twitter feed at Rockefort Fred. Um, if you are not following me yet, maybe this is a good time to start doing so. And with that, um, I would like to thank Mark once again for for being a guest. It was a it was a real pleasure, and there are definitely a few threads left from this conversation that we'll want to pull on uh, at a later date. So we look forward to having you back on on Global Law and Business, Mark. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.